Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online master of arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This lecture is a part of the 14th Annual Kosciuszko Chair Conference. This conference is sponsored by the Kosciuszko Chair of Polish Studies and the Center for Intermarium Studies. We'll be hearing from Dr. John Rogelowski. Dr. Rogelowski has taught history, art history, and geography at University of Alaska Southeast since 2007. Prior to moving to Alaska, he taught history courses at the University of St. Thomas, Hamline University, and Anoka Ramsey College in Minnesota. Dr. Rajalovsky also, also served as Assistant Project Director at the Center for Nations in Transition at the Hubert H. Humphrey Institute of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, where he helped design and administer U.S. aid and State Department-sponsored training programs for business, economics, and political science faculty and NGO leaders in Ukraine and East Central Europe. Dr. Rajalovsky's research and teaching interests are wide-ranging and diverse to include immigration and ethnicity, military history, war and genocide, the impact of technology on the history and geography of the Great Plains and Midwest, local and regional studies, and the history of Poland, Russia, Ukraine, and Central and Eastern Europe. Dr. Rajalovsky, welcome, and thank you for being with us this afternoon. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you to the Kosciuszko Chair and IWP for uh, hosting me. And uh, I'm going to share my screen here, and uh, we'll get the presentation started and uh, right. well I'm, I'm going to talk today about uh, my, my title is Forgotten Battlefields and we're going to talk about the, uh, the September 1939 campaign in Poland and uh, uh, its role in the history of the Second World War um, and uh, the term forgotten battlefield uh, was one that cropped up as early as 1944 in reference to the German invasion of Poland in 1939. Um, and this is a campaign that obviously the first campaign in Europe of the Second World War, but it's a campaign that has been subject to an inordinate number of myths and misunderstandings. Um, and so my, my talk is really going to focus uh, a little bit on the sort of history of 1939, uh, but also the historiography um, and why uh, the mythology of 1939 came to dominate uh, the uh, academic and popular histories of this uh, of this campaign, especially in the West. We're also going to look at a little comparison uh, with the Sino-Japanese War, uh, almost contemporary, uh, occurring in in China uh, during this period, which also uh, shares some of the same characteristics of. Uh, not necessarily perhaps being forgotten, but perhaps misremembered. Um, and uh, one of the one of the things that we can say about it, certainly in, in Polish, uh, there are several different names for this campaign. There isn't a, even a single uh, term that's used. Um, uh, often the September campaign is used, or the Polish defensive war of 1939 is another term that's, that's used in Polish literature. 
but we're going to call it the September campaign just for for ease of ease of use uh, here uh, today. Now, um, one of the one of the great myths about, and, and this was a, say a subject to uh, a lot of myths, and I, I pulled up this image. Um, it's a uh, title. It's it's the uh, uh, cover of a of a, of a war game uh, published uh, no, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, but it kind of perfectly illustrates the, uh, in, in one graphic, uh, the, the sort of mythology that arose about 1939 and um, what I would call the time life version of Second World War. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you remember, and this is still on many public library shelves, uh, time life books did, very, you know, very well illustrated series of, of books on the Second World War, um, but really kind of uh, in some ways a mythologized version of some of the events. And certainly um, uh, the, the September campaign is a good example of that. But uh, even the serious military historians uh, like B.H. Liddell Hart, for example, characterize the Polish defenses as something out of the 19th century. And this, uh, his, his, uh, his statement was that the Poles were relying on cavalry, like a, a you know, kind of a mid 19th century. And they, they weren't, they weren't even fighting, refighting World War One. They were refighting the Napoleonic Wars, um, which is, as it turns out, completely false. Um, and a lot of the narrative about the 1939 campaign uh, and the stories that came out of it were really drawn from German propaganda. And Liddell Hart was a, a um, uh, was not not uh, immune from the effects of German propaganda, um, and, and he certainly, in some of his writings, uh, sort of reflected a very Germanocentric view. But obviously, the, the the most the most prevalent myth was the Polish cavalry charged German tanks. That's the illustration you see here, or the Polish air force was destroyed on the ground, or any any number of other any number of other myths about the campaign, um, all of which were false. Now, over over the, over the past 20, 30 years, um, a lot of those myths have gradually begun to disappear from even from popular accounts of the Second World War, but they still crop up from time to time. Um, and so the question is, you know, why is this so persistent? Um, and more than that, the campaign, the, the story of the campaign the correct story of the campaign really hasn't uh, replaced that old mythological version. Um, so we still have a very sort of very cursory examination in most histories of the Second World War. Um, and so um, it's useful to kind of look at that. And, and what I call the time life version of the Second World War, um, you know, featured a lot of, you know, uh, resourceful Americans, you know, plucky Brits, heroic Russians, all you know, getting, getting together to defeat um, Hitler's legions, which were otherwise, in, uh, up until you know, the Russian winter of 1941, were otherwise invincible. This is the kind of myth, um, and, and it is. We'll see. It it, it had a lot. It um, uh, was able. It it, it provided it provided cover for a lot of different sins, as we'll see, um, and in, including including it was. Promoted by Germans, but also in the West, and promoted even in Poland, um, as we'll see. Uh, the Poles were certainly not immune from this either. Uh, both the Poles in exile and, and the communist Poland as well. Um, so let's look a little bit at the at the campaign, and it's useful to recap uh, just for uh, a sake of clarity that Poland was a new country um, after the First World War. It regained its independence after a long period of uh, foreign subjugation. 
um, and had tremendous number of problems, um, and uh, certainly the, the devastating effects of the First World War, um, exacerbated by the, the Polish-Soviet War that followed that. Um, and uh, this was a very poor country, uh, a country that um, had um, very limited industry, uh, was uh, in, uh, in, in modern terms, uh, analogous to a third world country. Um, and uh, was also in a very difficult geopolitical situation. Um, as you see on the map, uh, Germany and, and the Soviet Union are its two major uh, neighbors, uh, both of which were hostile to the new Polish state. Now, Germany was still restricted after the First World War and the First World Treaty. Soviet Union was not. Uh, so these were both serious threats. Uh, the Poles had rather poor relations with Czechoslovakia and very poor relations with Lithuania um, due to border disputes. Um, they had fairly good relations with the Latvians and the Romanians. Uh, but, but again, Poland was mostly surrounded by fairly hostile forces. Um, and its foreign policy uh, was based on alliance with France. But the French had proved largely unreliable throughout the interwar period. Uh, French governments rose and fell. Uh, so the Poles were kind of on their own uh, throughout much of the interwar period. But because Germany wasn't a major threat and uh, the Soviet Union was, was, uh, was uh, a threat, but not, um, not an immediate threat, at least in the 20s and early 30s, um, the Poles were able to maintain their independence over about a 21-year period, which will come to an end in 1939. Uh, with, with the rise of Adolf Hitler and, and the invasion of Poland. Uh, but it's useful to remember that Poland uh, was primarily an agrarian country, a country with large minority populations, uh, which were not necessarily happy under Polish rule. So a country with a lot of problems uh, in, in short, uh, but problems that we would see in any new democracy, uh, the, uh, any new country that, that arose after a long period of, of having lost its independence. Uh, so the problems that Poland had were not abnormal. And if we look around at um, attempts at nation building, which is now, I guess, a dirty word, um, you know, and how difficult it is to bring a country uh, into a sort of, you know, what we think of as a full Western democracy, uh, even with all the power and resources uh, that, that uh, the modern West has, uh, which it didn't, which weren't uh, provided to Poland, uh, we can see uh, the sort of the, the scale of the problems of Poland. And so this was not necessarily unusual uh, that Poland would suffer these problems. But it, it's very interesting that in the Second World War, Poland will be attacked by two of the um, most powerful and ruthless totalitarian states the world had ever known. Um, and this very imperfect society, um, you know, resists with, um, with, tr tremendous, with tremendous skill and, and perseverance. Um, and so a a as weak and, and problematic as interwar Poland might have been uh, in this period, um, it obviously had strengths and resources that many historians have not uh, fully appreciated. But looking at the, the Polish defense structure um, and how Poland responded to uh, the threats that it faced um, is sort of the first part of what I'll talk about. Um, and obviously in 19, uh, 1933, with the rise of Hitler to power, uh, the threats against Poland uh, began to increase. Um, and this was well recognized by the Poles. This was not necessarily something that they uh, ignored. Um, and in fact, in 
right shortly after Hitler came to power, um, the, the, the Polish leader, Josef Pilsudski, uh, proposed to the French uh, a joint military operation to remove Hitler from power. The, the French dismissed this. This was silly. Um, uh, warmongering on the part of the Poles, um, you know, Hitler couldn't possibly be a threat. Um, and so uh, as a result, uh, the, the, the Poles signed a non-aggression pact with the Germans. They had signed one with the Soviets earlier, which gave them a little bit of breathing room. Um, now, one of the big criticisms of, uh, of Poland was that it relied on its cavalry, which is sort of you know, cavalry-based army. This is not true. Um, the Polish army was really based as an infantry-based army, uh, like, like many armies at the time. Um, and so the, the sort of the core of the Polish army were about 30, 30 frontline infantry. Um, and uh, it had about 10 cavalry brigades. Uh, so cavalry made up about 10% of the Polish armed forces uh, at the start of the Second World War. Now, well, how does this compare uh, with other countries? Um, uh, the, US, the U.S. Army in the 1930s, for example, was about a quarter horse cavalry. Uh, so Poland had less horse cavalry than a country like the United States. And obviously, we were going under the Depression. We had a very small armed forces at the time, not very modernized. Uh, but just to, so, so Poland was certainly not um, out, of, uh, out of whack with regards to cavalry uh, as an arm of the armed forces. And we have to remember that uh, Poland, being a very poor country, did not have a significant automotive industry, uh, and to uh, did not have a significant number of motor cars or, or trucks uh, in the country. And so, to motorize a single Polish division along the standards of what the German army would would have at the start of the Second World War would have required all these civilian vehicles in the country to be, uh, to be confiscated just to just, just for one division. Um, so you can you can see kind of the, the, the scale of the problem. The other the other thing that the Polish cavalry um, did were were essentially uh, Poland was threatened from the east, uh, threatened from the Soviet Union, and so cavalry um, would be useful in eastern Poland where it had a very poorly developed road net uh, and a lot of rough terrain, marshes, swamps, mountains, uh, territory that the cavalry could negotiate. The, the Poles used their cavalry as a uh, sort of mobile infantry. Uh, Polish doctrine was not to line up with lances and sabers and charge the enemy um, unless there was a situation where the cavalry could surprise um, in, 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 in infantry unit, which happened on a number of occasions, but um, primarily this was sort of mobile light infantry uh, and, and not designed to, as you see in some of the old history textbooks, designed to sort of line up and charge uh, with, with sabers. Uh, and so it was, it was nothing like what we, what we see in mythology. Um, and in, um, in the late 1930s, uh, the Poles do begin to modernize. And, and after the death of Pilsudski in particular, the Poles begin to modernize their army. And we'll talk a little bit about in a second about the modernization program, but the army was not, most countries, Germany began to modernize its armed forces shortly after uh, the uh, Hitler came to power, at least planning for that, and um, after the, uh, uh, the reoccupation of the Rhineland. Um, and so uh, Germany's rearmament uh, is, is really almost contemporaneous with Poland's. Uh, the French began uh, a major rearmament at the same time period, so did the British. So the Poles are certainly not behind the eight ball when it comes to modernization. The problem the Poles have is that they don't have the industrial base to support the modernization that, that the other countries do. 
um, the Poles have to build the factories before they can order the weapons. Whereas in the case of Germany, the Germans are simply able to order, uh, and they have a, a large industrial base, um, and are simply able to uh, be begin uh, ordering and planning uh, new equipment, uh, whereas the Poles have to build the infrastructure first. Um, so uh, the the Poles are certainly not backward um, as a lot of generations of military historians would have uh, would have laid out for us. Um, and uh, the, the problem was, again, one of resources. Uh, the Poles also have uh, our, our Navy and Air Force. Uh, the Navy was fairly small, but actually quite modernized. Uh, most of its uh, ships, which were primarily based around destroyers and uh, submarines, were fairly modern. Um, the Navy, however, was designed to fight a war against the Soviet Union. Um, Poland's short coastline uh, made it obvious that in the, in the case of the war with Germany, the Navy would, would be out of action or would have to exit the Baltic Sea. Uh, but the Polish Navy was designed to uh, harass uh, Soviet shipping in the case of a war with the Soviet Union. Uh, and the Navy, and this is the uh, the destroyer Wyskowica, or Lightning, uh, which served throughout the Second World War. It's still, it's a museum ship today in Gdynia, uh, but uh, served throughout the Second World War uh, in the Allied cause. Uh, the Polish Air Force uh, was, was actually quite well regarded, uh, had an excellent pilot training program, and its, its pilots performed extremely well throughout the war. Uh, fairly well modernized. Uh, Poland had the first, in the 1920s, Poland had the first uh, all-metal air force in the world. Uh, they, they did away with biplanes. Uh, but again, Poland's industrial base did not allow it to produce the, the weapons and, and, the, uh, and the aircraft in the quantity that they needed. Uh, so the Poles had some very good designs, uh, in fact, some excellent aircraft designs, uh, but didn't have them in the quantities that they needed. Uh, and this was, again, the, the weakness was, in, was industrial, was economic, rather than in terms of the doctrine. And, and the Poles essentially followed the French doctrine in a lot of these areas, um, for better or for worse, obviously. It was, we see the 1940s, the, the, the French army had terrific problems. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, the, the Poles certainly weren't, um, um, you know, able to, uh, uh, you know, change their doctrine overnight. Um, a couple of the weaknesses the Poles had, um, and one of these was in command and control. Uh, the, the Bilsutsky had left behind a very poor staff and planning uh, apparatus. Uh, Pilsudski was a very good uh, sort of practical politician, uh, good in a crisis guy who was good in a crisis, but not a man who was very good at advanced planning or sort of peacetime management of the armed forces. Um, and so uh, a lot of aspects of staffing uh, and, and command and control uh, were neglected and continued to be neglected. Uh, and so the Poles lacked uh, sufficient modern radios. Uh, that, was, that was a real weakness. Another important weakness was artillery. Uh, the Poles had not developed a significant park of artillery by the time of the Second World War. Uh, the main support weapon that the Poles used uh, in, in this period in the 1930s was the uh, it was a French designed 75 millimeter field gun. Uh, this was a, a, a good weapon for its time. Uh, it had been really 
developed prior to the First World War, uh, and this was a sort of modernized, sort of a modernized version of it, uh, but but really inadequate. I um, mean, heavier artillery was 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 lacking as well as was uh, the ability to uh, exercise fire control. So the Poles had a significant number of significant problems. They did have some strengths. They had um, certainly a, um, uh, a very good core of, of uh, junior officers, uh, even some of the generals. Uh, unfortunately, under Phil Sutsky, um, a, a number of very good uh, uh, generals and leaders had uh, been pushed to the side because they weren't loyal to Phil Sutsky. Promotion was based on loyalty to Phil Sutsky. And so um, often, uh, generals, including the become the commander in chief, General uh, Edward Reed Smigley, um, who's primarily primarily chosen for his loyalty toward Phil Sutsky, uh, competent uh, sort of at a divisional level, but really not uh, able to command a, a modern army. But at the lower levels, uh, the Poles had quite a number of very good, dedicated, forward-thinking officers. Uh, they had some excellent units, including. Uh, rather unique unit um, that's sort of been, again, forgotten, uh, certainly not very well known in the West, and that is the Border Defense Corps. Um, and throughout the 1920s and 1930s, the Soviets continued to sort of rile up the border area. They'd send uh, 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 agents across the border, armed units to disrupt, uh, 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 attack civilians, uh, disrupt uh, uh, Polish government facilities, uh, you know, blow things up. Um, and the regular border police were not able to respond to this. Uh, the army, you know, calling in the army was too much. And so they, they created the, the Border Defense Corps, which was a sort of light infantry force designed for small unit tactics, border protection, intelligence gathering. Uh, and, uh, and, and so they were active defending, defending, sort of screening the border areas, initially in the, in the eastern border with the Soviet Union, but then as uh, as things heat up with Nazi Germany, uh, they they also are take take control of the border uh, with um, uh, with Germany as well. Now, one of the great myths about the Polish army and Polish armed forces is they begin the Second War World War with uh, antiquated armed forces, and this is certainly not true. Uh, the Polish uh, again the, the the constraint on the Poles was primarily industrial and economic not in terms of the equipment that they had. Uh, the Poles had some excellent equipment. Uh, in fact, some of it was better than their, than their opponents. Uh, one good example, for example, is the 7TP tank, which is the main Polish battle tank. Uh, and uh, this was superior to the Panzer I and Panzer II fielded by Germany, superior to the T uh, T26 uh, uh, fielded by the Soviets. Um, and although the Poles, again, didn't have them in sufficient quantities, the Poles had more tanks than the U.S. Army did in 1939. Okay, remember, we have to think about, we're not thinking about 1941 or 1942 or 43. We're talking about 1939, which is really a, a different um, a, a kind of war that's being fought. Uh, they'll, then they'll be fought two or three years later in terms of the, uh, the amount and the, uh, the effectiveness of, of tanks and other equipment. Um, and so the Poles had more tanks than, than the U.S., more tanks than Italy, uh, which had a well-developed automotive industry and a much more, much more de uh, uh, developed industrial base than Poland did. So Poland was certainly not, again, uh, it didn't have, it, it couldn't match the Soviets in tanks, it couldn't match the Germans in the number of tanks, uh, but it could match them in, in quality. 
uh, it had the polls put a significant amount of uh, emphasis on anti-tank defense. And this is not something, again, that when you read the sort of standard accounts of the Second World War and its, and its September campaign, you, you, don't, you don't pick this up in Western sources. But the polls had excellent anti-tank defenses. Um, their main anti-tank gun was the Bofors 37 millimeter anti-tank gun uh, uh, was being produced under license from the Swedish Bofors company uh, was at the time probably the, the best light anti-tank gun uh, on the market. Um, they also had uh, a very good anti-tank rifle, the Model 30, 35 anti-tank rifle, a very simple weapon, uh, essentially a bolt action rifle but with a unique tungsten core round uh, that would flatten on impact. And it's really kind of a precursor to a lot of modern anti-tank uh, 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 rounds that, that were there co commonly used since the Second World War. But instead of penetrating the armor of the tank, it would flatten against the side of the tank and transfer the kinetic energy into the tank, create spalling on the inside, which would be metal shards that would fly off the inside of the, of the armor of the tank. Uh, which would injure or kill the crew or cause damage and disable the tank. Uh, and this was, uh, again, a, a very a very effective weapon. Uh, in terms of aircraft, uh, the uh, PZL-37 Wash or Moose medium bomber was probably the best medium bomber in the world. It was certainly superior. It could fly higher and faster with a heavier bomb load than its counterparts um, and certainly superior to any of the Soviet counterparts. So the Poles had a, a very good array of weaponry. The problem was they couldn't deploy it in the numbers of the Polish modernization program uh, was really slated to run through 1942 and deliveries of weapons were, uh, were slated for that, for the, for the sort of late, later part of the, of the modernization program. Now, one of the criticisms of the Poles were why didn't they just purchase arms from you know, the British or the French or, or the Czechs? Um, and the problem there was that neither the British nor the French wanted to sell the Poles uh, their best equipment. They wanted to sell the Poles their cast off with second line equipment, uh, and uh, which was already, already way out of date. Uh, the Czechs wanted to charge the Poles an arm and a leg, and so the Poles simply couldn't afford that. Um, and so to fund their modernization program, one of the things the Poles did was to sell arms to other countries. So they had, they were selling aircraft, for example, Bulgaria and Greece and Turkey, um, and aircraft that probably could have been kept at home. Uh, but they needed to do this to earn the cash to keep their, their weapons programs running. Um, and, and so again, the constraints on the Poles were primarily economic. And just to keep this in perspective, uh, a, a German panzer division at the start of the Second World War had a budget greater than the entire Polish army, just to give you an understanding of the scale. And it wasn't like the Poles were not spending a significant part of their GDP on defense. They were. They were. Um, the Soviet Union was number one in the late 1930s in terms of European countries spending its percentage of GDP on defense. Poland was number two. Germany was number three. So the Poles were spending, were using a lot of their, their, their economic output to fund this modernization. But the Polish economy was just so small um, that uh, compared to their two competitors, uh, East and West, uh, the, the, this was uh, you know, much smaller than, than, would it, than, than they, uh, they, they really needed at the time. Now, one of the advantages the Poles did have 
was uh, was in intelligence and code breaking, uh, and the Poles were able to break the German military codes, uh, and that's a story that's hopefully fairly well known, uh, and uh, passed that on to the British and the French uh, in at the um, start of the Second World War, uh, and uh, they were able to crack the Enigma codes. They, they had they had broken Red Army codes too, uh, certainly during the 1920s. In the 30s, they were able to read Red Army traffic. Um, there is some indication that they may have bro broken Red Army codes during the war as well, uh, but it, that, that's the, the evidence on that is not not as clear. Uh, but they, they they had a very advanced intelligence operation, uh, and they had agents throughout Germany, throughout Europe, uh, and the Poles were very well informed about German plans. Uh, by the time of the, the day that the war started, September the first. The Poles had identified over 90% of the German forces agreed against them, uh, their disposition and uh, and their their order of battle. So uh, they they had a, they had a very, they had a very good picture of what of what they were facing. Um, so again, this wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a, certainly a surprise as far as the Poles were concerned. Now this is the German plan. Um, this is a U.S. standard U.S. Army history map. Uh, and uh, the, the German plan envisioned uh, overwhelming the country within two weeks uh, and uh, uh, using armored spearheads, one of which would transit across the Polish corridor in the north through East Prussia and attack Warsaw from the north. The other would essentially move up from uh, through Silesia, attack sort of in a pincer movement, uh, sort of envelop Western Poland. This was the, at least the plan. It didn't quite work out this way, um, a lot as most plans do. The Poles, by contrast, uh, the Polish strategy was designed first and foremost because the Poles recognized that in an event with a war, war with Germany, they would not be able to win outright. Um, and so the, the Polish goal was to make sure that the, the French and, and also the British, the British will sign uh, uh, alliance with the Poles, uh, make sure the British and the French enter the war. The, the Poles had observed what happened in Czechoslovakia um, and, and how the British and the French had acted uh, with regards to, to their alliance with the Czechs and uh, wanted to ensure that in the case of a war with Germany, that Germany didn't come in to seize Danzig or seize some of the border territories that, that Hitler claimed he wanted and then declare the conflict over. The Poles needed to ensure that the Germans engaged uh, a major Polish army unit, so it couldn't they, they couldn't just write it off as a border incident uh, and, and and leave it at that. They needed to draw the French and the British into the conflict. So that was step number one. And so this is one of the reasons why they positioned their for, their forces relatively far forward. In addition to that, the areas that the Poles are defending in the early stages of the campaign are the most populous and most heavily ethnically Polish areas. Uh, and uh, and so they were the kind of core areas of the country, unfortunately located relatively close to the German border. Uh, so they couldn't they couldn't just be abandoned without a fight. Um, but the plan was that once the Poles had engaged the German forces, they were going to gradually withdraw to the southeast um, and toward the Romanian border in the south. And Romania was a friendly country, uh, and the idea was they could be resupplied through Romania from from Britain and France. Um, southeastern area of the country was also uh, very, very rough, very mountainous, uh, and uh, uh, the Poles had stockpiled uh, a lot of the reserve supplies in this area. So the idea was sort of this gradual withdrawal to the southeast. 
problem was, of course, that uh, the Poles greatly underestimated, as many people did, the speed of the German army's advance. Um, and as we'll see, additional problem the Poles had was that this dependence on the French and the British meant that uh, when Hitler begins to threaten Poland, when German armies in August of 1939 began to mass on Poland's border, the Poles want to declare full mobilization, but they're stopped by the French. On two occasions, and the days right before the start of the war, the Poles declare a full mobilization, but they're stopped by French and British diplomatic intervention. And, and the British and the French essentially say, if you mobilize, we're not gonna come help you. And so the Poles pull back and they really don't, they really don't fully mobilize until the very last minute, which means a lot of their forces include about a third to a half of Polish forces were not in place at the start of the war, which is really, was really, I think, one of the fatal uh, flaws, one of the fatal problems that Poland experienced in the campaign. Uh, and, and so uh, this was, uh, but again, this was the result of having to rely on your British and French partners, so to speak, uh, to, uh, uh, for your defense. The war begins on September the 1st, uh, 1939, with the attack at Westerplatte, uh, in the city of Danzig, which is a Polish transit station. It's attacked by um, the battleship Szeszwig-Holstein, but it actually turns out to be rather a fiasco for the Germans. Uh, they, 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 they plaster the, the little small garrison uh, and, uh, and then uh, march in, assuming that the Poles are mostly wiped out. And, and in fact, Germans suffer very heavy casualties. Um, a lot of the September campaign uh, was really a sort of bitterly fought infantryman's battle for all of the talk about mechanized forces, and they were important. A lot of the, the fighting is... Uh, uh, really kind of up close and personal. Uh, and it's really Germany's uh, uh, overwhelming material superiority and, and their overwhelming firepower superiority that allows them to prevail as they did. However, it is not, as we'll see, the kind of walkover that's been portrayed in a lot of Western history accounts. And a good example of that is the Battle of Mokra on September the 1st, which is one of the first battles of the war. Um, and Mokra is an area uh, near Chanstehova um, and uh, was right in the path of sort of one of the main German attacks. Um, and it's essentially attacking toward Chanstehova and beyond Chanstehova uh, toward Wuj and, and, and Piotrkov in Warsaw. Um, and so it's really kind of the, was the main axis of, the, of, of one of the initial German attacks. Um, and the area on Mokra is screened by the Volinska Cavalry Brigade. Um, and reinforced by a couple of other uh, smaller units. And uh, they're, they're set up in a wooded area uh, near the border. Uh, and uh, most of the troops are concealed in wooded, uh, wooded terrain. Um, and uh, the cavalry are, of course, dismounted. Uh, you know, this is, a, uh, as I said, uh, sort of typical setup of the Polish cavalry. Uh, and uh, I inter I've interviewed veterans of the campaign and uh, uh, what essentially happened is, is, the, is the, it, about five o'clock in the morning, the Germans crossed the border, uh, began to advance toward Polish positions, um, and, and kind of tentatively, they're, they're not, it's, it's foggy, it's, there's a lot of mist, they're not really sure where the Poles are. Um, and at about, um, at about uh, eight o'clock in the morning, um, they, they began to advance toward the main Polish positions. 
um, they're not sure uh, that, you know, where the poles exactly are located. So they begin shelling the wooded areas, uh, trying to provoke a response uh, to the poles. Uh, but one of the veterans I, I interviewed was in command of the anti-tank gun section, the, the Bofor anti-tank guns that I showed you uh, previously. And his orders were to uh, keep his men down and quiet until the Germans got very, very close. And so um, as Germans are firing into the woods, they're not getting any response uh, from, uh, from the woods. And so they begin to advance more confidently. Tanks uh, with some infantry begin to uh, creep forward. Uh, they wait, uh, the poles wait, it's 500 yards, 400 yards. At 150, 150 meters, uh, uh, he, he orders his men to, uh, to stand to their guns and open fire. It's really almost point blank range. And the result is this massacre. That, uh, German tanks are wiped out left and right. They begin to fall back. They fall back a couple hundred meters, but they're still well within range of the Polish guns. And, and they take even heavier losses. The infantry are left on the field uh, under Polish small arms fire and pinned down. Um, and so it's a, the fiasco. The Germans attack again at 10 o'clock um, and backing up in the sort of rear of the Polish line is, a, is, a, uh, is, is the railroad embankment. Uh, and the Germans managed to break through the railroad embankment. But at that moment, a Polish armored train with heavy guns roars down the track right through the middle of the German advance. Um, and just basically it, heavy cannons and turrets basically wipe out a number of the German tanks, uh, force them to withdraw again. At noon, over 100 German tanks um, uh, launch another major attack and again break through to the rail line, uh, but are again repelled um, by, by the the last stages of the battle um, in, the, in the early afternoon, uh, a number of tanks try to cross the rail line, but it's a high railroad embankment. The tanks can only cross at certain points. Uh, a couple of the tanks, some of the tanks cross, but some of the tanks in the middle over the crossing get, get knocked out, start on fire, trapping some of the tanks on the other side of the, of the rail line. Uh, German Panzer troops begin to panic. Uh, they begin to uh, basically jump out of their vehicles and run for the German border. Uh, and uh, uh, over approxi approximately 200 uh, German tanks are destroyed. Uh, our tanks and armored cars are destroyed uh, between about 150 and 200 uh, at, at Mokra. Uh, and um, the, the image of German tank uh, ta uh, panzer troops running in panic, abandoning their vehicles, running in panic back toward the German border is not the image that we get from most of the literature of the 1939 campaign. Uh, but in many instances, uh, when, the, uh, uh, when the, 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 the Germans run into Polish positions, this is the result. Um, uh, neither army, of course, experienced this everyone's brand, most, most of people are brand new to combat, uh, but the Germans get the worst of, of a lot of these initial conflicts. Um, in the air, even though the Polish Air Force is smaller um, and its equipment is in some cases out of date, this is the P-11, which was the frontline Polish fighter. Um, it was much slower than, the, the, than its German counterparts, but much more maneuverable, but it, Poles had very good pilots. Uh, and so uh, we're able to defeat some of the initial German bombing raids on Warsaw uh, and uh, uh, the P-11 in the hands of a good pilot could outturn the Messerschmitt 109. Uh, it was not fast enough to catch up to it, but uh, could outturn it. Um, and so in the hands of a good pilot, 
it could deal with an ME1, even with an ME109. Uh, but, uh, but we're definitely, definitely outclass. And so, uh, the Polish air force puts a very good, puts up a very good account of itself in the first few days of the conflict, again, um, able to repel a lot of the German air raids on central Poland. Um, and, um, so a, the other myth of course, about the September campaign is the Polish air force is all destroyed on the ground before the war, which again, you know, the evidence shows completely the opposite. Now, the problem was that the, um, the, the Germans had, um, in the Poles were not able to maintain a continuous front line. Um, and the advantage, it turns out, of German motorized forces is not they have these tanks that are going to roll over Polish positions. Uh, when, again, as we see at Mokra, uh, when, that, when Germans are running up against these Polish positions, they're, they're, they're getting massacred. Uh, the advantage of the motorized forces is they're able to find the gaps in the Polish positions. Um, and we know, and we know, for example, the German reconnaissance forces suffer very heavy casualties um, as they're probing for these these gaps. But the gap, they do find the gaps, and so they're able to uh, outflank the Polish positions and get around them. Um, and so, there's like several stages now occur. Uh, there's a uh, initial battle for the borders in the first few days, September the third. Uh, the Allies declare, finally declare war, but really do nothing. There's a Polish counterattack uh, then uh, on uh, as, the, as the Germans break through. The German German intelligence was terrible. Uh, they, they lost track of two whole, whole two whole Polish armies in in and in, uh, in Western Poland, which then counterattack. Uh, German motorized forces are able to respond, however, and, and sort of staunch the bleeding. Um, but the war really uh, continues to heat up. I mean, Polish forces are falling back. They're suffering very heavy losses. Um, but they're they're giving a very good account of themselves. We know this because Polish uh, German losses peak in the third week of the conflict. Um, so it's not till the third week the Germans are suffering their their heaviest losses, um, as as Polish forces are able to coalesce around the bastions, uh, Warsaw, Lwów, the, the sea coast, uh, the Modlin, uh, and uh, and as the Germans begin to encounter more difficult terrain, uh, and so. Uh, you know the, the the myth of the Germans sort of rolled over the poles, and that was that. Uh, you know, was was really is really as we see quite false. Um, in fact, the Germans understood this very well. Um, in German literature during the war, uh, up, up until the invasion of Russia, within the Battle of Moscow, uh, the uh, September campaign was considered by 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 the Germans to be their to be their toughest test uh, of their armed forces, uh, and and they in their internal literature recognized that. Um, the, uh, as a result, um, one, one of the things that happens is, is we're terror, uh, uh, terror bombing, uh, the, uh, uh, the city of Warsaw is destroyed. Uh, the Germans are waging war, not just on the Polish armed forces, but on civilians. Um, this is one of the important, other important features of the September campaign that tends to be, uh, is that, uh, th this was, uh, Germans began immediately killing civilians in large numbers. Uh, the use of Einsatzgruppen, which will be used in the Holocaust, uh, particularly after with Operation Barbarossa, are pioneered in 1939 uh, against the Poles. Uh, these units that come behind the main armies and shoot prisoners of war, shoot civilians uh, in, in large numbers. Um, and, and really the German armed forces, the Air Force and the uh, 
and the army participating in war crimes in a huge number. Um, in, in France uh, and in, in the French campaign of 1940, uh, there's about 16 different massacres of civilians and POWs that are carried out by German forces. Uh, in, in 1939, there are, are roughly 16 massacres occurring every day of the campaign in Poland. Uh, so it's a completely different scale uh, than what happened. But it really, it, it's really a prefiguring of the sort of war of racial extermination that Germany is going to wage beginning in 1941 with the invasion of the Soviet Union. Speaking of the Soviet Union, of course, the Soviet forces attack on September the 17th, uh, which any hope the Polish defenses had of coalescing in southeastern Poland are, are destroyed. Uh, the Poles have very few forces to resist the Soviet advance, but they resist that they resist they do. Uh, the Sarny bunkers, for example, uh, Lieutenant Jan Bolbot, whose picture is here, uh, has a scratch force of border defense, uh, border defense corps troops, 50 men up against thousands of Soviet troops. They hold out all day long, uh, fight to the last man. In one instance, the, the Soviet forces were going to perform very poorly in Finland. They performed very poorly in Poland as well. Um, in, in one instance, a, a, a Polish cavalry squadron um, encounters a regiment of Soviet tanks. They have an anti-tank rifle with only a couple rounds left. They put, a, they put a couple tanks out of action. Then they begin, then they knock out more tanks using Molotov cocktails. They run out of Molotov cocktails. Local peasants come with bottles of kerosene. So they knock out more tanks with bottles of kerosene. Uh, finally, they run out of kerosene and uh, there's still Soviet tanks milling around. Uh, they, they have no infantry support. Uh, and, and so one of, one of the Polish commanders gets a, gets a blacksmith's hammer, a sledgehammer, and, and jumps up on top of the Soviet tank and begins to smash the, uh, the, uh, uh, the radio equipment, the uh, periscopes, and the machine gun uh, to put it out of action. Uh, but uh, the Soviets suffer very heavy losses. We don't know how many because they uh, has been uh, it's still covered up. But uh, the, the resistance was was tremendous, uh, and, and it certainly did, did stop at any point. But this leads, of course, to the partition of of, of Poland, beginning of the Second World War. Now, um, one of the uh, the features that I wanted to look at is, is sort of why all of this was forgot was, well, I say it's a forgotten campaign, but perhaps it's better to call it misremembered um, and perhaps deliberately misremembered. And if we want to look at a comparison, we can look at the, uh, the Sino-Japanese War uh, from 1937 uh, and then leading, in, leading into the Second World War in Asia. And, and, the, and the story story, the time-life story, if you will, of the Sino-Japanese War as the Japanese sort of march through and the Chinese nationalist forces under Chiang Kai-shek are completely unable to resist them. Um, and Chiang Kai-shek is corrupt and incompetent, and he's only concerned about fighting the communists, and only the communists fight uh, the, uh, uh, the Japanese. Um, and this is sort of the myth, and this, um, of course, there's a lot of literature. Uh, Richard Frank's recent book, uh, Tower of Skulls, among others, uh, as well as work by Chinese scholars, has demonstrated that this is, in fact, completely false. The Chinese forces put up tremendous resistance. Japanese forces suffered very heavy losses uh, during, the, during the campaign. And uh, uh, in fact, and of course, again, like Poland, China had a very small industrial base, uh, didn't have very modernized forces. 
uh, and yet obviously much larger scale in terms of the, the total numbers, but put up tremendous resistance. Um, and I think a, a good example of that is the Battle of Zhuho in, in April of 19, 1938 is, is Japanese forces of advance south after taking Shanghai. Um, and um, the, uh, the uh, they, they run into a number of fortified villages and, and the, most of the Chinese troops facing them in the Battle of Zhuho were second line troops. They, they, weren't, they weren't Chiang Kai-shek's sort of uh, core uh, central army forces. Uh, they weren't these experiment trained forces. They were actually more, more of its region, the regional forces, uh, which were not nearly as well trained or equipped. Um, and they put up tremendous resistance uh, in, in, in many instances. For example, the, uh, in the village of uh, Tengshan, uh, the uh, 122nd uh, elements of 100, 122nd Chinese division fight to the last man. Um, they're attacked repeatedly by, uh, uh, by uh, Heavy, uh, heavy artillery, uh, aircraft, tanks, um, but inflicts huge casualties on, on the Japanese as well, um, and um, are able to really resist and counterattack uh, the Japanese. In fact, uh, China becomes a quagmire for Japan. Uh, the China, the, the Japanese can't extricate themselves. Uh, you know, throughout the Second World War, the, the Japanese are committing almost a million soldiers. To defend, uh, to 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 occupy China, and that's in addition to armies of the Chinese puppet government that, the, uh, that they're employing as well. Uh, and uh, and, it, and comparably, by the way, uh, the, the poll the polls throughout the Second World War tie down over half a million German uh, German troops in just occupying Poland. Um, and so these these campaigns appear successful on one hand, but they but they don't necessarily. Uh, mirror their the success over, over the long term. Um, the Japanese eventually will take Zhuho, but again, um, uh, the Chinese or Chinese forces are able to withdraw. Um, now the question is, uh, and and I think uh, why these campaigns have been treated in this way. And, and I would suggest that, um, as I say, they're 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 not just forgotten; they're they're misremembered. In the case of China. Um, a lot of that was influenced by the writing of General Joe Stilwell, who was the American proconsul in China, hated Chiang Kai-shek, really didn't like the Chinese much either, uh, was a man just full of resentments, uh, and his memoirs really came to dominate the literature. But let's also think about what happened after the war. Uh, in Poland, of course, the Soviets take over, uh, and the, the Allied alliances with the Poles are pushed to the side in uh, in deference to the Soviets. Um, Allied Allied performance in the early parts of the war, particularly the British and the French, was incompetent. Um, their their military efforts, their political efforts, were utterly feckless. Um, and so, if Poland, but if Poland can't defend itself, um, then it, it doesn't matter, right? Uh, it sort of it sort of takes the takes the sting out of this, um, and it excuses a lot of the fault, a lot of the mistakes that the British and the French made in the early part of the war. Had the Germans launched most of their forces against Poland, they had very few defending the border uh, with France. Had the French launched a vigorous counteroffensive into Germany in 1939. Um, the war might have turned out very differently and much shorter. Um, again, counterfactual, we can't predict that. Uh, but they, they, certainly, they certainly abandoned, the, the, both the British and the French abandoned the Poles in 1939 uh, after, after urging them not to mobilize their forces. Uh, Iran and Yalta, uh, the Americans, 
uh, are certainly not interested in uh, in, uh, in supporting the Poles. Uh, the Soviets, of course, aren't interested in supporting the Poles. Uh, the, the Germans, uh, this is obviously their, their mythology um, and uh, really builds on the mythology of the, of the sort of the, the, the power and prowess of the Wehrmacht, the sort of clean Wehrmacht mythology that comes in at the end of the Second World War to kind of exculpate the German army uh, from, uh, from the crimes of Nazism. All of these play into the sort of myth of 1939. The Poles themselves, the Polish communist government had obviously uh, a great disdain for uh, the pre-war government, but also the Poles in exile, uh, the Polish government in exile, were opponents of the pre-war government. Um, and so they had no love lost for, uh, uh, for the, uh, uh, the, the, the Sanatia government uh, that followed Pilsudski. So they had, even the Poles had very little interest in sort of revise, sort of challenging the myths of 1939. But similarly in the case of China, at the end of the war, the communists, uh, the Chinese revolution, um, uh, Mao Zedong's communist forces uh, with, with assistance from the Soviets, manages to defeat Chiang Kai-shek uh, and the nationalists have to flee to Taiwan uh, where their successors reside today. Uh, and a whole question broke out over who lost China. Well, if China was undefendable, if Chiang Kai-shek was totally incompetent and corrupt, um, clearly no matter what the Americans did, it wouldn't have mattered, right? So portraying Chiang Kai-shek as an incompetent fool and a, and a corrupt leader served a lot, it sort of covered a lot of uh, faults, if you will, uh, and, and was able to excuse a lot of faults. And similarly, in the, in the 1939 campaign, uh, you know, we, we see this, uh, you know, if, if Poland or China couldn't defend themselves, they were totally incompetent, then it didn't really matter what any, any of their allies did, uh, when in fact, uh, both, I think it's quite arguable, uh, both at the end of the Second World War, our failure to support the nationalists uh, contributed to the, the, the communist takeover. Uh, and uh, certainly in, uh, you know, excusing, you know, write, writing Poland off uh, made it easier to accept uh, the Soviet domination of Poland after the war. Um, so these, these accounts, these mythologies persisted Precisely because of post-war politics and Cold War politics, uh, but but in a way that was designed to exculpate uh, 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 Western governments from and Western leaders from some of the mistakes that they made. Uh, but in the end, uh, this was uh, obviously a terrible tragedy for both Poland and China. Uh, even to this day, and this is uh, was just recently discovered in Warsaw. Uh, the, uh, the, the site of civilians who were massacred in 1939 uh, toward the end of the campaign, just, just in Warsaw, uh, by German forces. Uh, and uh, uh, both, uh, certainly, certainly Poland uh, was in a sense of plaything for the great powers, um, and its civilian population suffered uh, under Soviet rule, under, under Nazi rule. Um, just as China suffered um, under suffered tremendously under, under communist rule, um, and so by remembering these campaigns correctly, uh, we, we provide some some measure of, uh, if not justice, at least uh, uh, some truth telling uh, for for the people who suffered so much from these campaigns. Um, and with that, I'll bring it to a conclusion. So I thank you very much. 
for listening. And uh, if you have questions, you can certainly pass them on to me through uh, through the uh, uh, through the Institute for World Politics. I'd be more than happy to uh, answer any any questions you want to send by email. So thank you very much. <laughs>